It's uh, good to be here with you this morning. It is certainly good to be back. We are excited to be back. Uh, We had a wonderful trip, a good two weeks, but it's good to be back here with you all. Even though it's a little colder here than it was where we were at, we'll take the cold weather over some of the uh, social realities that we were facing uh, down in Haiti, it being a third world country. At this time of year, we have put the uh, boxes in the back. If there is a way that we could be praying for your family through this holiday season, if there's a way we could be keeping you in prayer, or if there's uh, maybe something that the Lord's leading uh, you to share with us that that we could be remembering, uh, you could just drop them back in the box, and uh, we will be praying for you and with you uh, through this holiday season. We're beginning our Advent series today. Over the next four weeks, we're going to explore how the birth of Jesus gives us reason for great peace, great hope, great love, and great joy. And we're going to begin this morning by exploring the great peace that we can have because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. So what you see uh, in this picture before you probably looks pretty peaceful to you. And, uh, and, and to be honest with you, it was peaceful. Now, there were moments during our days uh, in the crash in Haiti where there was a lot of uh, craziness and a lot of things going on. In fact, the children were in school every day from about 8 to 10. At 10 o'clock, they would dismiss them from their classes, and they knew that we were there. And so when the dismissal happened, it was like a stampede of about 70 to 80 kids that would come running down. It wasn't so peaceful anymore uh, in the crash during those moments, but fun nonetheless. These are the four boys, uh, the two that are bookended, uh, Yuri and Levinsky on the ends, uh, are the two that have been referred to us uh, for adoption. Their older brothers are in the middle, and we're still praying over what the Lord uh, might have for them in this process that we're in. Same exact time, at the same exact moment that this picture was being taken, a picture that looks very peaceful, uh, you know, looks very quiet, this was the reality of what was happening in the same city, Port-au-Prince. And thankfully in our time there and and the moments that we had uh, in Haiti, we did not see any of this unrest or any of this violence. The Lord protected us, He kept us, He preserved us, but nonetheless it was going on just right outside our house. There were times where we could see smoke, from the fires that were being set in the streets. Uh, We heard gunshots uh, on occasion. Uh, Even on the way to the airport, we saw vehicles that had been riddled with gunshot uh, bullets and things like that. And thankfully, uh, we, even though it happened in the same city, uh, we, we did not see any of this going on. Pride, power, prestige, all of these things push nations to the brink. They pit brothers against one another, families against families, communities against communities, nations against nations. And there's a great umbrella of darkness that encompasses uh, the world with violence and atrocity and war. And current statistics say that there's only around 10 to 11 countries in the world that are actually free from any kind of internal or external conflict. Now think about that. 10 to 11 countries only that are free from any kind of internal or external war or conflict. We look all around today and we see the Middle East and countries of Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan. We know what's going on in North and South Korea and Libya and in the South Sudan. There is war all around us. And we might ask ourselves the question, it might be appropriate to ask ourselves in light of the alarmingly violent and war-filled conditions that we live in, 
is there still hope for peace? Is there still hope for peace in the midst of all this? And as we walk together through our text this morning, we'll be confronted with the God who is productive in spite of the surrounding circumstances. And he's a God that gives us many reasons to be hopeful. And we will find that not only do we have hope for great peace, but that we as believers should be experiencing great peace because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. If you have your Bibles today, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 7. And as you turn there, let's pray. Father God, we approach your word this morning knowing that it is your will for us to be changed through the power of your word. God, we pray that you may open our hearts, that you may clear our minds of all the distractions of the day, of all of the involvements that we have that can take our focus away from what you might have. And Lord, that we might know that you indeed are the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace that your word declares you to be. Lord, would you cause us to leave here changed today, growing in a greater love for you and a greater love for each other. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to read the entire seven verses together as we start this morning. This is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the way beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has shone a light. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So our first question as we come to our text this morning is, if if God is able to be productive in times of turmoil, if, if we find ourselves serving a God who is productive even in our deepest moments of stress and despair and turmoil and war, how has he been productive? What has God produced? And as we look at verses 1 through 3, it's important as we come to the text that we realize the context of what Israel is facing, of what they're going through when this was written. In 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire, under the leadership of of a ruler, uh, of a a general whose name was Tiglath-Pileser, they ransacked the northern Israelite lands. 
with heavy destruction specifically dealt to the tribes that you see written right here at the beginning of our text, Zebulon and Naphtali. The people were taken into captivity. They were enslaved, forced to live under oppressive conditions. The Assyrians took much of the land for themselves, and by 733 B.C., about 10 to 11 years later, they had compressed what was left over of the land into three sections. And you see those three sections named here in the first few verses of our text. Uh, The lands were called the Way of the Sea, which they called Duru. The land beyond the Jordan, which they called Galaza. And Galilee of the nations, which they called Megiddo. And friends, what we come to discover about God is that even in the midst of this despair, even in the midst of captivity that the Israelites were facing, the distress that they saw all around them, in the face of great trials, we find a God who can produce a precious peace and a great hope in us. It's the way that our God works. And and to be honest, friends, it's exactly what we experienced at our time in Haiti. And there were days when we were told, there were days when we would get a knock on our door. And, and normally the knock on the door meant that it was mealtime. So we were excited and we would jump up and run. It means it was time to go eat. But there were days when we got a knock on the door and the knock on the door was to inform us that we could not leave our guest house because it was too dangerous out on the streets that day. And, and, and so there was great turmoil and there was great distress and there was great unrest going on in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, all around us. Yet in the midst of that, God was producing something. He was producing a situation where we were in a guest house with five to six other families who were being united with children that they would be adopting. Children who would be coming into their forever families. And friends, this is what our God is able to do, and it's what he does all over the world. The world is filled with cruel hatred. It's filled with violence. And yet in these very circumstances, God is able to produce something good. There are stories of victory, deliverance, freedom, and even adoption in the midst of all the war and distress and turmoil we see all around us. Look down again at verse 1. In the former times, the Lord used contempt and judgment. And he used that contempt, he used that judgment. He used Assyria to produce something within the Israelites. Through their oppressors, hope was produced. Faithful obedience was produced in their hearts. But in the latter times, what God is is producing will be for all peoples, for all nations, not just his chosen ones. So our question might be, what exactly has the work of God produced? And there's a few realities that we can see in our text this morning. If you look at verse 2, we'll begin there. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Out of darkness, friends, we have light. And this is the testimony of the scriptures, even from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. Right? In the beginning it was dark, and God spoke, and God created light. And there was light. We flash forward to the beginning of of the book of John, in John chapter 1. Jesus came, he was the light. Light is connected to hope. And friends, we have hope because God is accomplishing the promises that he's given to his people. 
In the Old Testament, it looked like this. God spoke, and with his mere words, he had the power to produce. From darkness, light was called forth, and light had no choice but to obey its master. God made a promise to Abraham, then he produced on it. He came through on his promise. There was times throughout the Old Testament where Israel needed deliverance, and God provided deliverance for them. In the midst of great turmoil, he produced. There was a season of Israel's history where they wanted a king. You remember, right? They, they said, we need a king to be like the other nations. We don't have anyone to represent us. We need to be like the others around us. And what did God do? He produced for them a king. When Israel failed to live up to their end of the covenant, the judgment of the Lord produced hope. And hope's response, hope's consequence in the lives of the people of Israel was faithful obedience and a bringing back, a coming back to God. And we flash forward to the New Testament. There's affirmation that in the beginning was the Word. And friends, the Word was productive. It was producing something. Under the dark cloud of oppression during the Roman Empire, when all hope seemed lost, a great light shined in the darkness. And friends, the darkness was unable to overcome it. And so we find our God to be a productive God in the midst of the great turmoil and stress that we see all around us. He's able to produce light, and hope follows light. But that's not it. There's more that he produces. And look at verse 3. Really, it becomes kind of a sub-theme of our text this morning. In verse 3, it says, You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. And so there's more than hope that our God is able to produce in the midst of these turmoils. He's also able to produce great joy. Great joy. Just just as he said he would do. Remember when he told Abraham back at the Abrahamic covenant that he would bless them and make them as numerous as the stars. In spite of all the circumstances surrounding Israel and their history, in, in spite of their captivity in Egypt, in spite of their captivity in Assyria, and later on in Babylon, God was still keeping His promises, the numbers were still increasing. And that brought joy. And friends, this is a promise that the Lord said he would continue when he was here on earth the first time. He said, I will build my church. I will build my church. There will be an increase in numbers. We have cause and reason to be joyful. Our joy is increased because we experience the blessings of a covenant-keeping God who is faithful to his promise. And the joy of the Israelites could be increased because even though they were in captivity, the Lord was still able to cause their numbers to increase. And our text describes this morning uh, two particular ways. It kind of describes this joy. And when you look at this in the text, think uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas. Right, so Thanksgiving and Christmas, probably for us in this room, they're kind of the two times of years where we're most joyful and we're most excited. And so it describes it this way, if you look at it in verse 3, the second half of verse 3 there, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. What does that make us think of? For me, that, that makes me think of Thanksgiving, right? Joy at the harvest. One of the reasons we celebrate Thanksgiving, that's, that's one of the reasons. There's joy when we harvest. We, there's been productivity. We're joyful. We're thankful for the pro- productivity that the Lord has brought. 
And we also enjoy all the food, right? I've got to talk to many of you about the, the meals you enjoyed with your families. One of our couples today told me they even had uh, some Laos cooking over Thanksgiving. That sounds good to me. I think I would enjoy that. I like trying different food. Um, there were times in Haiti when I had to ask very clearly what I was eating because I was not quite certain what was placed before me. But, but we rejoice at this time of harvest. There's productivity. And I think of Thanksgiving, joy at the harvest when we're together with our families. And then I think of Christmas for the second half. They are glad when they divide the spoil. And I think about the joy of a child on Christmas Day. Right? One of the great joys of children on Christmas Day is giving gifts, but also receiving gifts. And I remember as a child on Christmas Day, at the end of the day, you'd sit and you would look at the spoil that you got, and there wasn't much dividing of it amongst our siblings, but we would divide it amongst ourselves and start to break it apart and play with it, and there's joy in that. And for the Israelites, when there was military victories, when the Lord went before them and gave them great victory, they would have opportunity to divide the spoil, and there was joy that came in the provision of the Lord. And I think it's, it's very significant and very important that we recognize something here. And that is this, because I, I believe we live in a culture that very, very much likes to put this on us to produce. And we live in a culture that puts a lot of stress and a lot of pressure on us to produce our own hope and to produce joy from within ourselves. But our text is very clear this morning in these first three verses that it is the Lord that is producing this. It is the Lord that is producing the hope that we have, and it should be the Lord who is producing the joy that we have. We don't produce these characteristics or these attributes in and of ourselves. The Lord produces them within us. And if there's any lasting joy that we might have and any lasting hope that we might have, it must be be found in the Lord. He is doing the work, and so he must get the credit. He produces the light. He produces the joy. He gets the glory. And so, friends, in our text this morning, there's at least four reasons why we can be hopeful. It's more than just the fact that he's produced joy, and he's produced light, and he's produced hope. There's also in our text this, this morning four reasons that we can be hopeful. And the first reason is this. God secures our victory over those who oppress us. Look in verse 4 of our text. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. You know, one of the things I realized in our time in Haiti is we don't face much oppression in America. At least we don't see much here. When we step off a plane in Haiti and we walk down and we touch ground, feet on the ground, and we pull out and, and start to drive towards our guest house, oppression surrounds us and is ever before us. And, and it is everywhere. And I've shared with many of you that, that it's on so many levels, friends. It, it, there is economic oppression. There's political oppression. It's why the people are so angry in Haiti right now. They're upset at their government. There's social oppression. You know, I, find it very, I found it very interesting that in Haiti we met a lot of people who were uh, living in destitute poverty, less than $2.50 of American money a day they were trying to live off of. And then we met people who were very, very wealthy. 
But I don't know if we met anyone who would have been considered a middle class. I just don't even know if that class exists or if it does. It's very small. It's either great wealth or great poverty, it seemed like, within that country. And so there's some economic oppression going on there. We've seen oppression maybe uh, more closely in our country over things like addiction. We know the choices uh, that come from addiction can be oppressive. The, the consequences that come can be oppressive. Sometimes, friends, it feels like the odds are stacked against us. The breaks aren't coming our way. The battles are too difficult. And the foes are too great or too strong. And the author of our text here this morning, he gives us a comparison He goes to an account in Judges chapter 6 and 7. Now, Judges is one of my favorite books of the Bible. I hope sometime after the new year to do a a study in Judges here for the congregation. It's it's a book that I have spent very much time in and I love. And so uh, this account hits very close to home with Gideon and the Midianites. Now, Gideon was a man who was leading an army of 300 people. And if you want to think if the foe's too great or a foe's too big, a David and Goliath type of battle, the enemy that he was facing had 130,000 people in their army. Now, I am terrible at math, but the internet is great at it. And so I, last, last night, actually, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm interested to know what those odds were. It just kind of hit me as I was reflecting on the message. And so I went and I did this calculation on the chances of success When you have 300 versus 130,000, the probability of winning that war was less than 1%. And in fact, there there used to be a poster in my office. It got lost in the move. I'm trying to find it. I want to find it again because I loved it. I had it hanging over my desk. It was a picture of Judges 6 and 7 by dots. And the top half of the picture had 300 dots, and it took up about that much of the poster, and the poster was about that big. And the rest of the poster was 130,000 little dots. Massive. And why I hung it up is because it reminded me over and over and over again that no matter what the odds are, the Lord is capable of producing victory. He's capable of doing it. And so I was looking last night, the probability, the actual probability, the actual number of Gideon Uh, to win was 0.23%, less than 1%, 0.23%, which means for the Midianites, their chance of success in that battle was 99.77%. The odds were greater than 99 to 1 in regards to human thinking and the way that we assess things. And, and, And thank goodness that it wasn't up to the leadership of Gideon. I mean, Gideon was a fine leader in and of its own rights. I don't want to put him down, but, but thank goodness with those odds, it wasn't left up to him because he probably would have failed. But thankfully, the odds were not relying on his ability as a general, but on God's ability as the king of kings and the ruler of men. And indeed, in, in Judges chapter 6 and 7, God has the victory. He has the victory. But I think there's something deeper going on here in our text this morning. I think that the, the writer is using this scenario to show us that there are some significant similarities between the situation that Gideon faced and the situation that the Israelites faced under the captivity of Assyria. And so let's take a look at some of those similarities between what the Israelites were facing and what Gideon faced. First, there's this. Both 
men, uh, both groups of people, both faced a powerful enemy with a large army that had invaded or was invading the promised land. We have this both in the account of the Assyrians invading uh, Israel, and we have it in the account with Gideon uh, doing battle with the Midianites. They're both facing a powerful and large army that is putting in peril the land of promise. For both Israel and Gideon, a sign would be provided. A sign would be provided. And we're going to look at what that sign is here in another verse or so, uh, in verse 6. But for Gideon, we remember the fleece, right? We remember learning that story. In fact, I, I was here the Wednesday night that story was taught here at Awana uh, just a few weeks ago. Uh, the story of Gideon and the fleece. Both were provided a sign. In both accounts, the emphasis is placed on faith. In faith in God over dependence on man. Man only delivers us from our oppressors when he is acting as a vessel of God. Our faith for deliverance must rest solely on the power of God. And so in both accounts, we have this idea that presses us towards dependence on God and not on man. In both accounts, we find massive powers, armies, Large groups of people being humbled by seemingly small forces. For Gideon, Gideon had 300 men. That's it. 300 soldiers. And for Israel, they had a child. An infant. A baby was going to be born. And these seemingly small forces would conquer these impenetrable, powerful, large armies and kingdoms. And in both situations... There is redemption and deliverance from oppressors. And so I believe that the author, the writer of our text here, is using this to show us that there are some similarities here between the oppression that Israel was facing and the oppression that Gideon and his people faced. And God was able to deliver Gideon, and God would also be able to deliver the nation of Israel. And so our text moves on to affirm that God is able to produce peace in the midst of war. God is able to produce peace in the midst of war. Look down at verse 5 of our text this morning. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. God brings peace in the midst of war. War destroys, it divides, it separates, it's, it's terrifying. And its consequences are revisited through many, many, many generations and it's only God who's able to heal the wounds of war in a nation and he is powerful enough to do so and there will be a time friends when there'll no longer be a craving for the shedding of blood the power and the prestige and the pride that drives nation against nation will be destroyed and burned as fuel for the fire there will be total peace on earth at some time and friends, I know that that's a, a, a phrase that may be hard for us to imagine because there is not one person that sits in this room today that hasn't lived through a generation of war. Every single one of us that sit here this morning have experienced war at some point or another in our lifetime. Our country has gone to war. Yet we know from scriptures, and we, we heard from what Pastor Stan shared over the last few weeks that there is promise of very such a time. And Isaiah alludes to this future time, one that is yet to come. 
It's Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 to 9. Listen to this description. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and a lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. And last week I got to hear Pastor Stan, he was sharing from the book of Ezekiel and he talked about the weapons that would be burned for seven years. And this week in our text we find that it's not only the weapons but it's also the garments that have been rolled in blood that will also be used as fuel for the fire. So it's the weapons, it's the garments. The idea, friends, is that in the millennial reign of Christ there will be total peace. Total peace. Peace. Human government as we know it will be over. The reign of Christ will be ushered in. And we can have hope that this future event is going to happen because of the next verse in our text. Because God fulfilled the promise of verse 6. Look down at verse 6 this morning. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Friends, there's another reason that we can be hopeful today. And the reason is this. God has provided his son who promises peace to those who fix their hope on him. Listen to this from John chapter 1 verse 14. Neil alluded to it this morning as he was leading us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. This promise came to fruition in the birth of Jesus. And the child he's described in four very powerful, intentional, and specific ways here in our text. And the writer of our text, he, he's, this is not an accident, the words that he's using to describe Jesus. They're very meaningful. And in fact, as we go into the gospel accounts and we begin to look at the gospel accounts, each one of these titles is fulfilled and we can kind of see the fulfillment of it in the accounts of the gospel. So that by the end of the, the final gospel, if you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John by the end of the book of John you come away with the true knowledge that this was indeed the promised child the first name that they use is this wonderful counselor and I want to show you the new text the new testament affirmation of each of these titles one is in John chapter 1 verses 48 to 50 Nathaniel said to Jesus how do you know me how do you know me And Jesus answered, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And if you remember, Jesus knew what was in Nathanael's heart. He already knew before he was called. Later, it tells us in John chapter 2, in the very next chapter, that Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Why was he a wonderful counselor? Because he knows us perfectly he knows our needs he knows our desires he knows our hearts he knows what's in us and that's what makes him a wonderful counselor he knew how to pray for us friends Jesus in John chapter 17 prays 
And he prays for his disciples and he prays for his people. And he knew exactly what we would need. In John 21, when he was restoring Peter, he knew exactly what Peter needed in that moment. He knew Peter's heart and he restored him. He's a wonderful counselor. Our text also describes him this morning as a mighty God. And we need to look no further than there's a laundry list, turning water into wine, healing the sick and the blind, and the blind calming the storm, feeding thousands with a few loaves of bread and fish, raising Lazarus from the dead and conquering death as he himself raised from the dead. I would say this is a testimony of a mighty, mighty God. Our text also says that he is the everlasting or eternal father. And in the New Testament, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John chapter 8, 58, Jesus says to the people who are questioning him, before Abraham was, I am. John 10, 30, he says, I and the Father are one. Jesus is, friends, our eternal Father. And finally, and most powerfully, our text describes to him the title of Prince of Peace. And I want to pause here because as you read this, maybe there's some tension in your mind that develops over this title. And I want to affirm for you today that when there's tension, when we're reading the scriptures and when we're studying the scriptures, tension is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, in my life, uh, the testimony of my life has been when I have tension over how to align and how to clarify two sets of scriptures that may look like they're teaching something a little different. When there's tension, it often leads me to dig a little deeper and to find answers. And so as you read this title, Prince of Peace, many of your minds may go immediately to Matthew chapter 10, which I think it's natural. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 36 says this. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. Whoa. Wow. But he's supposed to be the Prince of Peace. And it goes on to say, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against a mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And so when we see this title, Prince of Peace, and we read that passage, we may think, well, what's, what's going on here? How do we resolve this apparent tension between that and what we also know from John 14, where Jesus says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Do I give to you? Let not your hearts be troubled. He says this in John chapter 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have, what? Peace. And in, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body, and be thankful. Friends, I, I've said it before and I've said it again, I think oftentimes in the Bible, and, and the Bible actually ascribes this own reality to itself, we find division. The book the, the Bible, God's word, is powerful enough to divide. It talks about it in Hebrews chapter 4. And there will be a time, friends, and there is a time where Jesus is going to divide the sheep and the goats. And so we find that in our lives, a lot of times in relationships that we may even have very near and dear to our hearts, there's division. Because maybe we know Jesus and we have a relationship with Christ, but somebody else in that relationship does not. And so we have division, and sometimes we find division in our relationships because of our relationship 
with Christ. And people who don't have a relationship with Jesus, friends, they should see something different in us. I had a friend that used to tell me something has to be different. Something has to be different in our lives than the lives of those that we go to work with that don't know Jesus. Something has to look different in our lives than the lives of our neighbors around us that don't know Jesus. Something has to look different in our lives than the lives of those in our own homes that may not know or have a relationship with Jesus. The Bible says, what do light and darkness have in common? So how do we resolve this tension? We resolve this tension by understanding a truth that is simple, yet incredibly profound. Without Jesus, there is no peace with God. With Jesus, we have peace with God. And and it's been said kind of more simplistically this way. No Jesus, no peace, right? N-O, N-O. No Jesus, K-N-O-W. No peace, K-N-O. O-W. And friends, we can be hopeful because through the work of Jesus on our behalf, we have peace with God. If we sit here today and we're in a relationship with Jesus Christ and he's called us unto himself, we have peace with God. He is our prince of peace. And this is the reality and it's how we alleviate and we resolve this tension. But friends, the reality for those people in our lives that do not know Jesus is that there should not be This kind of peace that passes all understanding. This eternal peace that only the Prince of Peace can provide. Our text this morning uncovers one final reason that we can be hopeful. And the final reason is this. The Son will rule with justice and righteousness. Look down at verse 7. The description of the kingdom that he will rule. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This promised son, the son that's promised in verse 6, his his kingdom is going to look very, very different than any human kingdom that we've ever experienced or witnessed on earth. Friends, we don't rule in the same way that Christ is going to rule. He's going to rule free of pride. He's going to rule free of the need of power. And he's going to rule in complete perfection, complete righteousness, complete justice. Jesus' kingdom, there's, there's really two qualities and attributes of Christ's kingdom that are in this text here. And the first is this, Jesus' kingdom will increase and there will be no end to it. His kingdom will increase and there will be no end to it. And the second is this. Jesus will uphold and establish his kingdom with justice and righteousness. It's hard for us to define and understand this. We talk about utopias and utopian environments where everything is perfect. Friends, this will be the reign of Christ. This will be what he's able to produce when he is ruling in the millennial kingdom. And I love the last line of our text this morning, uh, next, to the, next to verse 6 and the power of verse 6, the, the final line of our text is so powerful to me. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Friends, it's an affirmation that God is eager to accomplish this. He's eager to do it. He's going to do it. And, and his promise of doing it is as sure and as true as any other promise he's ever made with his people. God is going to accomplish this reality. 
And as we approach the end of our text, every week we ask ourselves the question, how should our lives look in light of these realities? And friends, I just, I can, I'm an expert in my own life, and so I can share with you a little bit about that. And I can just tell you that in the past eight months of, of Sheila and I's journey, God has called us to do things that we would have never done two to three years ago. We would have never, ever done it. We were going to bed last night, and I was sharing just reflections. We were kind of in this flood of change in our life. And I was laying in bed, and I said, Sheila, I can't explain this, and it's nothing that I've done. But for whatever reason, I am so much more thankful today for what Jesus has done for me than I was even two or three years ago. And, and, and I can't explain that. It's not because of any kind of work that I've done in my life. I don't feel personally like I've changed at all. It, it, but it's, it's God that's doing it. It's, it's Him that's producing it. And He gives us this peace to make these decisions that we have friends in our life that look at us and say, you are crazy. <laughs> I laugh because I hear it a lot. And it's true. <laughs> Over a lot of decisions that we've made, not just this, this adoption decision, which is the one that's on the table in front of us right now, but, but there are many in the last eight months that we've made. And, and I, I cannot say anything but this, that we have had a peace in every one of these decisions that we cannot define or describe. It passes all understanding. And, and, and the initial conflict and the initial turmoil that we have over some of these thoughts and, 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 and some of these decisions that we've made, they all dissipate as God drives us into a deeper dependence with Him. And, and, and I'm so thankful that we serve a God whose power is made perfect in our weakness because I have been confronted over and over and over again in the last eight months with my own weakness and my own inability to do anything. But, but at the same time, I've been confronted over and over and over and over again with the reality that he is powerful enough to do it. And he is doing it. And it gives us a peace to live the way that we're living. And friends, I pray and I hope that you experience that same kind of peace in your life over decisions that you make. If you sit here today and you have a relationship with Jesus, he is your prince of peace. He can give you this peace. And I would also say this. If you're here this morning and you do not know this peace, that, that, that you've never experienced this peace before, maybe what I'm saying is such a foreign idea to you that you can't even begin to fathom it. There would be no greater day than this day to understand what that peace means for you. And I would love to pray with you. One of our elders would love to pray with you. One of our staff or one of our other pastors would love to pray with you and, and, and help you find that peace in your life. Jesus can give it to you. Only He can do it. And it's available for you today. And friends, we're going to celebrate our Prince of Peace today by remembering His sacrifice, what He secured for us on the cross. And we're going to do it through partaking together this morning in communion. And so as our ushers begin to prepare to Deliver the elements at Calvary Monument Bible Church, the communion table, and the elements are available to all who claim to know Jesus and have a personal relationship with Him. 
If you are with us today as a guest and, and you don't know this piece uh, and, and, and you're not sure if you know Jesus, we would uh, invite you to just allow the bread and the cup to pass by. We don't want you to feel any pressure to participate. If you're here with us today and you've affirmed Christ as your personal Savior, we would invite you to participate in communion with us this morning. As our ushers come forward, might we take a moment to pray and prepare our hearts in silence, examining ourselves, confessing our sins, and preparing to receive communion. Would you pray? Father God, it is with great thankfulness that we approach you this morning. Great thankfulness for what you've produced in our lives, for the hope that you've given us, for the joy that you've given us, for the peace that you've given us. Lord, we recognize and we affirm this morning that that peace, that hope, that joy does not come from our own selves, but is a gift from you, and we celebrate that gift. This morning we celebrate your son Jesus, the work that he's accomplished for us, that gives us, leads us into a right relationship with you. We're thankful that he's rent the curtain that divided us, broken down the walls of hostility, and he's given us a way to celebrate and to worship, and to glorify, and to know you as our God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.